Friday and we sing songs that speak to Christ bearing away the curse for our soul. To bear the dreadful curse. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse. I wonder if you were asked, what does that mean? What does it mean that Christ bore the dreadful curse on behalf of your soul and my soul? I wonder if you'd be able to answer that. What does it mean for Christ to bear the curse, to bear away our sin? We think of Good Friday, we think of Jesus dying on the cross, we think of his agony as he hung suspended between heaven and earth. But that agony on the cross began moments earlier, hours earlier, in a garden. You never really understand Golgotha until you understand Gethsemane. And so what I want to do this evening is I want to meditate on what it meant to Christ to bear away our curse. And I want to do that by going into the garden with Jesus. I want to do that this evening. I want to go into the garden. I want to be one of the disciples. I want us to feel the, the chill in the air that evening as Thursday night is ending and Friday morning is beginning. And we just saw our Savior at the Lord's Supper, at that last supper, break bread and say, this is my body, this is my blood that's given for you. And he said, one of you will betray me. And he said, all of you will fall away. And, and we followed him out of that upper room and down through the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives. And we entered into that location in the Garden of Gethsemane where we have found ourselves many times before. This is a normal location for Jesus to go with his disciples. That's why Judas knew exactly where Jesus was going to be if he wasn't in the upper room. We've been here before, but we've never seen our Savior like this. And I want to ask the question as we hear him speak, as we see him act, what did Good Friday mean to him? Mark chapter 14, verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground. And he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was praying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh 
is weak. And again he went away to pray, saying the same words, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, not what I will, but what you will. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Tonight I want us to meditate on what it meant for Christ to bear the dreadful curse for our souls. And I want to do it in four different parts. I want to meditate together in the garden with our Savior, there in the cool of the evening, maybe wrapping a jacket around yourself, maybe sitting next to a tree trunk, wondering what are we doing here? Why are we here? Why is the Savior in agony? Why does he take Peter, James, and John away? We're just, there's questions in our mind. We don't know what's happening. As we watch our Savior in a state that we've never seen him before. I want us to meditate on four realities of Christ's agony, of Christ bearing the curse. Number one, let's look at the garden. Let's look at the garden. In order to bring paradise back, in order to bring us back to the garden of paradise, Jesus had to go to this garden. In the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given a choice to obey, and they were given that choice with every possible advantage to enable them to obey. They walked with God in the garden. They were perfect. They were sinless. They didn't know what sin was, and yet they disobeyed. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is given a choice as well, and he has every disadvantage happening around him. He hasn't slept that evening. He's been trying to keep the upper room location hidden from Judas. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And and then on Monday, he cleansed the temple. He has taken over the temple on Tuesday. And he's been teaching in the temple with all of those questions designed by the religious leaders to trap Jesus. And he has been able to evade all of them and actually to throw that trap back in their face. And the religious leaders have all conspired together. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, everybody says we want Jesus dead. But the crowds love him, and we can't do it in broad daylight because the crowds will riot against us, so therefore it has to be at night. And the next time that Jesus would be alone would be the Passover. He'd be away from the crowds. Jesus has every disadvantage in the garden. He's alone. He's by himself. He knows all the disciples are going to flee away. And yet, with every disadvantage in this garden, he will obey. He will succeed where Adam and Eve fell. All of redemptive history is really the story of two gardens. It's the Garden of Eden where paradise was lost, and it's the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is going to make a decision in order to enable us to have paradise restored. Jesus goes to the garden to be obedient to the Father, undoing Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden. Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed, they hid behind a tree, naked, covered in shame. Jesus hangs on a tree, not behind it, but on it, naked, conquering shame, guilt, sin, death. Adam and Eve began in paradise, but they're forced outside because of the curse. 
Jesus dies outside of the gates, but he will end up in paradise because he conquers the curse. Adam and Eve's sin brings the curse of thorns, and Jesus will bear that crown of thorns on his head in order to usher in salvation. It will take Gethsemane to conquer what happened in Eden. And so we enter the garden. Verse 32, they came to a place named Gethsemane. Literally, it means olive press, where the olives would be put into that vat pressed down and the wine would come out or the oil would come out. That's a perfect metaphor for what's going to happen to Jesus. He will be pressed, not only in this garden, but he will be pressed at the cross where he will be bled out. He takes Peter, James, and John and he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he tells them where he is at emotionally. He says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. We don't talk that way. We don't speak in that vernacular. If we were to put that in our common vernacular, we would say, I could die right now. I'm so grieved. I'm in such agony. I'm in such pain. I could die now. Jesus could have died in the garden due to his overwhelming agony. And so he says, will you please remain here and keep watch? Keep watch. It's as if a battle's taking place. This is battle terminology. This is military language. Keep watch. Stand guard. We're in the fight for our lives this evening. As we come to the garden, we've never seen Jesus this way. He's, he's stared at the religious leaders face to face, and he has called them a brood of vipers. He's called down curses on their head for being blind leaders who lead blind people to hell. He's been unafraid. He, he speaks to demons, to people possessed by demons, and he's never afraid whatsoever of those people. He's never afraid of the, the legion. You remember Mark chapter 5, two men show up and, and they have the, the demons that are called legion and they're terrifying everybody in that village and Jesus just stands there and speaks to them. Never afraid, never filled with fear, with anxiety, with agony, with any form of stress whatsoever. He heals people, he preaches, he teaches. But in the garden, everything changes. In the garden, he's grieved to the point of death. In verse 35, he will go a little ways beyond them and he fell to the ground. He can't even stand up. He's filled with such distress, such grief. Luke tells us that at the end of this experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, God the Father will send an angel to strengthen Jesus so that he can get up and go to be tried six times by the Romans and the Jews to be convicted as a common criminal, to be condemned to die and to be nailed to a cross. It requires an angel to be dispatched to strengthen Jesus. And you remember... The last time that was necessary was when Jesus was in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and the devil himself was tempting Jesus throughout that entire period of time and Jesus had to be strengthened by an angel. Here again we see this agony on display. Strengthened by an angel because of such distress. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, the Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. Such was the intensity of Jesus' experience that Luke the physician recorded that Jesus' sweat was like drops of blood. And at the end of the experience, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. 
Alexander White, the famous Scottish minister in the 19th century, once said with insight that in heaven, after he had seen Christ himself, he would like his first conversation to be with this angel. Who knows what depths of suffering he came to witness. Such agony. Why such agony? We enter the garden and we see Jesus in agony, but the question is why? Why is he in agony? And most people would answer, he's thinking about Golgotha. He's thinking about going to be crucified. And I would say, yes, but you need to qualify that. Many people will say, well, he was in agony because he's going to be abandoned by all of his friends. He's going to be abandoned by those that were closest to him. Peter will deny him three times. Judas will betray him. And yes, that will cause grief to his soul. Jesus loved his disciples. John 13 says he loved them to the very end. He found enjoyment in that company of friends. He's so kind to his disciples here in the garden that his prayers are interrupted by his concern for them. He loves them so much. So yes, it's going to be agonizing to see all of his disciples fall away except for John who follows him to the, to the cross. But that's not why there's agony. Many people will point to the physical agony of the cross. They will point to how awful and literally excruciating. We get the word excruciating out of the cross. It's, it's a Latin term of out of the cross. That uh, It's so awful. It's so filled with agony. Was Jesus contemplating the physical death he was going to die when he's in the garden? I personally don't think so. Now, I don't want to diminish how awful crucifixion was. It's a terrible death. It's an awful death. One of the most unimaginable ways to die. Uh, filled with agony, filled with distress, filled with despair. It's awful. Wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But those that followed after Jesus. You remember disciples that would follow after Jesus. You remember Peter. Peter's going to follow after Jesus. And Peter's going to be crucified upside down. And we're told that he went singing to his death that he looked at his wife and his children and he said don't weep for me sing with me rejoice with me we know so many people that were martyred because of their love for Christ and they went to their death singing and praising with no fear with no agony with no distress if Jesus is just terrified of the physical agony of the cross. If that's why he can't stand up in the garden. I, just, I want to submit to you, I think he's a wimp and he's not worthy to be followed. His followers are more courageous than he is. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not thinking about the physical agony of the cross in the garden. He's not thinking about the physical pain that he's going to experience. He's thinking about the spiritual death that he is going to die, which will entail the fullness of the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus alone. That's why he can't stand up. He's thinking about the cup. That leads to our second meditation. Number one, we meditate on the, the garden. Number two, the cup. The cup is why Jesus cannot stand up. Verse 35, he went a little ways beyond them and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, if there's any way that the hour might pass him by and he was crying out, Abba, Father, 
All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Was the cup the physical agony of the cross? No, the cup was the spiritual agony of what the cross would mean for Christ. Psalm chapter 75, verse 7 and 8. God is the judge. He puts one down and exalts another. And a cup is in the hand of the Lord. And wine foams. It is well mixed. And he pours out of this. And surely all of the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Rouse yourself. Rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling. You have drained it to the dregs. Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 29. I'll read just a few of those. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink, and they will stagger, and they will go mad because of it. They will drink and stagger and go mad. This is the cup that's mentioned in Revelation that we studied. A cup of the judgment of God, the Father, against sin and sinful humanity. What is in the cup? It is the full wrath of God against sin. It is literally hell itself. Now, think with me why Jesus is filled with such agony. Think about the formula here. I'm not a math guy, but I can do this formula. If I die in my sins, rejecting Jesus, not bowing the knee to him, not trusting in him for salvation, not loving him, not committing my life to him, if I die in my sins, I will spend eternity in hell. I will spend forever in hell. That is my punishment. It is just. It is fair. It is right. And Jesus is going to pay for that punishment. He's going to pay that penalty. But notice how he's going to do it. He's going to go to the cross. He'll be nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. And he will be hanging on the cross from 9 to noon in broad daylight. People are talking. He's talking to people. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Father, forgive them. And then at 11.59, the sky starts to go black. And, and I just I can see Jesus hanging on the cross, taking one or two last deep breaths as he sees the blackness rolling in, which is a picture of the judgment of the Father that's going to be poured out on the Son. I don't think that that wrath was being poured out. Most theologians wouldn't say that that wrath was being poured out in those first three hours from nine to noon. But when the sky goes dark from noon to three, it's black. Jesus will scream in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's when he's bearing the wrath of God. That's when he's drinking the cup. So I see Jesus on the cross at 11.59 and he looks and he sees when the sun is supposed to be the brightest, he sees clouds rushing in. He sees blackness creeping in and, and I think he takes one or two last deep breaths and he grimaces and he prepares himself to bear hell itself. Now if I die in my sins, hell is forever. It is eternal and how long did Jesus bear the penalty that I deserve? He bore it in the span of three hours. Again, I'm not a math guy, but that formula doesn't work. 
eternity for Patrick as a penalty, and Jesus bears it in three hours. And he doesn't just do it for Patrick. He does it for every single person who would believe in him. Millions of people. So he bears millions of eternal punishments in the span of three hours. How is that possible? It's possible because of two things. Number one, the punishment would be so intense. The intense suffering he would go through to bottle up infinity and pour it into three hours, it had to be intense. And then number two, the infinite nature of who Jesus was. Intense suffering and an infinite savior. Jesus himself could bottle up infinite suffering because he himself is infinite. But that's why he is staggering in the garden. No, it's not the physical agony. As horrific as that would be. And let that be instructive to us about what was truly despairing and distressing and agonizing. For as horrific as the cross was, it was the spiritual death that Jesus would die. It was the wrath of God being poured out. One commentator says it this way. This cringing at the prospect of absorbing God's wrath underscores the righteousness of Jesus and the perfection of his human nature. Jesus' request in the garden when he says, take this cup from me, Jesus' request is not a blemish that mars his commitment to the work of the cross as if he were not macho enough here. Rather, his plea is the jewel of his character. Because if you understand the contents of the cup, then the desire to avoid it is part of his perfection. His hesitation is a godly one. There would be something wrong if he didn't flinch at this. How then could Jesus be a perfectly righteous savior if he did not abominate such a portion and plead to escape it? And so he does. He who holds the universe in the palm of his hands prays, completely dependent on his heavenly Father. He prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What is Jesus wanting at that moment? What is he expecting in that moment? See him on the ground, face down, in the garden, pleading, sweating drops of blood, crying out in agony. What is he wanting in that moment? Maybe something like he received at his baptism. Maybe something like he experienced at his transfiguration or during the Passion Week when the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Maybe some confirmation, some affirmation. He seems to be at the end of his resources. He is stretched to the point of breaking. And so he says, Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. When do you invoke the sovereignty of God? When do you say, God, you can do anything? You do it when you know that there's nothing else that can be done. When the world is upside down, you cling to the one who can turn it right side up. And so he cries out in agony, will you remove this cup? We're in the garden, but just for a moment, go in your mind's eye to heaven. What would the angels have been thinking when they heard Jesus say, 
let this hour pass. Remove this cup. What would the angels have been thinking? What would they have been feeling? What would they have been desiring? I think they all collectively turn to the Father and stare and wonder, what is the Father going to do? We've all heard it. We've all heard the Father's beloved Son, in whom he's well pleased, cry out in agony, will you spare me from this moment? What's the Father going to do? I think all of heaven looks. Think of what all of heaven has seen the Father do. Think of the book of Exodus, which the Passover is a celebration of the Exodus, of the Israelites being delivered from the Egyptians. You think of how God initiates that with Moses. You remember what God says? I have heard the groanings and the crimes of my people. I've heard their distress. I've heard them pleading to me, and I'm going to get them out. I love them. I think the angels in heaven must have been thinking, this is going to be the greatest display ever of God rescuing the one that he loves. This is going to be the greatest display ever for God to rend the heavens, to come down, to send all of us to save him. I think the angels are saying, are you ready? Get ready. Here we go. Surely he's going to rescue his son. He loves his son. Surely in this moment he will do anything to get his son out of that situation. Moms and dads, you know this experience. My precious daughter fell really badly last Sunday and hurt her back and got the wind knocked out of her. And it's one of those experiences where probably the wind getting knocked out of you is a little bit more scary than the pain of the back, but she was in agony. She was crying. I was watching her because she was trying to move the trash cans that are in our front yard so that I could park my car on the sidewalk and have people be able to come over and hang out with us. And so I asked her to go move the trash can. It was a little too heavy. She fell down. It fell on top of her. What would any parent do in that moment? I threw my car into park. I probably messed my transmission up, right? Just threw it in park, jumped out, ran over to her, and just grabbed her and held on to her. And as she's struggling to breathe, and as she's crying, I'm just holding her, and I'm saying, it's okay, you'll be okay, don't worry, you'll be okay, just take deep breaths, you'll be okay. I don't love my daughter as much as my Heavenly Father loves his son. Surely in this moment he will say, come home, my son. I've watched you in agony year after year. I've watched people try to kill you. I've watched the people that you made mock you. And I've watched with joy as you have loved them. Come home. Enough of this. They're not worth it. Come home. John Flavel, an old Puritan writer, imagines a conversation that the father had with his son in eternity past over this very moment. He says this, the father speaks in eternity past, and he says, my son, 
Here's a company of miserable, poor souls that have utterly undone themselves and now they lie open to my justice and justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for them? And Jesus responds, Oh my Father, such as my love to and pity for them than rather they should perish eternally, I shall be responsible for them as their surety. I, Father, will be responsible for them. Father, bring in all of thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that after there may be no reckonings with them and my hand shall require it. I would rather choose to suffer the wrath due them than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all of their debt. But my son... If thou undertake it for them, thou must reckon to the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me because I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, and though it impoverish all of my riches and empty all of my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. What will the father do as he sees his son in agony cry out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What is the response that Jesus hears? You ready for it? Here's the response that Jesus hears. Nothing. There is no voice. There is no reassurance. He pleads again. Abba, Father, is there any way? No response. William Lane writes it this way. The dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering or death. It's rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of the alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin, which Jesus will assume. This horror thus anticipates the cry of dereliction in chapter 15, verse 34, where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he says this, listen to this. Jesus came to be with the Father in the garden for an interlude before his betrayal. But he found hell rather than heaven opened before him. And he staggered. For God so loved the world that he was silent when his son pleaded. Is there another way? We see the garden. We see the cup. Thirdly, I want to meditate on the curse. I want to meditate on the curse. Jesus cries out in agony because he knows what is going to happen at the cross 
is an exchange where Jesus, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, who knew no sin will become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was not a sinner. He never sinned. He became sin so that God the Father could punish Jesus and treat him at the cross as if he had lived our sinful lives so that the Father could treat you and me as if we lived Jesus' perfection. But think with me here on why Jesus staggers in the garden. Why this is so agonizing to him. We've already seen the cup that he will drink, but think about the curse. Think about what this entails. My children would be able to tell you, we say this almost every day, what does obedience bring? What does disobedience bring? I could tell you if they were up here right now, obedience brings joy. It always does, sometimes not right away, sometimes not in the way you think, but it will always bring joy and blessing. Obedience always brings joy. What does disobedience bring? It always brings sorrow. Obedience always brings joy, disobedience always brings sorrow, and that's all Jesus has ever known. Throughout his entire life, he's never disobeyed, so he's never known the sorrow that comes with disobedience. He's never known the curse that comes with disobedience. He's only ever known perfect communion with the Father through his perfect obedience. As he obeys every thought, every action, every attitude, every deed, as he obeys, the Father is perfectly pleased in his obedience, and therefore there's perfect unity, there's perfect communion, there's never any division, and there's never any curse. And the reason why Jesus is staggering in the garden is because to obey the Father in this moment will bring about a curse. This makes no sense. Obedience brings joy. Disobedience brings the curse. The garden is the first time in human history where obedience brings about sorrow and obedience brings about a curse and obedience brings about disunity and a a broken fellowship with the Father. Jesus has never known this. He's perfectly obeyed. Remember John chapter 4, verse 34. It is my food to do the will of my Father. I love doing it. That's why this is such a terrifying prospect for Jesus. I love to obey, but to obey my Father means I will break fellowship with him. Is there any other way? Because I don't want a broken fellowship with my Father, but to obey gets me that. I don't want to disobey because that also gets me broken fellowship. What am I to do? Every time I obey, Jesus would say, I'm in sweet communion with the Father, but my obedience in this moment will lead to my separation. What am I to do? Martin Luther said it this way, never has a man ever feared death like this man. And we look and we say, yes, that's right, but why? Why is Jesus so afraid? Luther would go on to say, because for no other man is death so unnatural And so undeserved. For no other man is death so unnatural and so undeserved. Jesus will willingly become a curse for us. His actions will lead to him being cursed. His obedience leads not to joy but to curse. Remember the blessing that Aaron gives. Very familiar blessing in Numbers chapter 6 verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. 
In the garden, Jesus is contemplating the polar opposite of that beautiful benediction. What's the opposite? What's the antithesis of that? That's what Jesus will experience on the cross. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without mercy. May the Lord cast you away from his presence and give you hell. That's why in the garden Jesus experiences such agony because he knows my obedience in obeying the Father will lead to my being cursed. So the question is, what will Jesus do? What will Jesus do? He prays three times in agony. Is there another way? Silence every time. Is there another way? Is there another way? And what he decides to do is staggering. It leads to our fourth meditation, the glory. We see the garden, we see the cup, we see the curse, and we see the glory. What's his response? Not my will, but yours. Hallelujah. What a savior. For Jesus to willingly say, Father, bring me the curse, pour out guilt upon me, pour out sin, pour out shame, pour out every single act of disobedience, and let me pay for it all. Isaiah 53, verse 6, which was already read for us, the Lord has placed upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. Here in the garden, Jesus says, yes, do that. You can see here in the garden his resolution to the cross. He is resolved in this moment to say, I will do it. Once he's prayed the three times and he says, not my will, but yours be done, he gets up and he says, let's go. This is the hour of the power of darkness. I know what's going to happen. I'm willing to undertake it. And I, for the joy set before me, am going to the cross. No one has ever drunk this cup dry except for Jesus. Even sinners who are in hell at this very moment are still drinking it. They will never drink it dry. They can never drink it dry. Only Jesus can. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9 tells us that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. That's the author of Hebrews' meditation on the garden, with loud crying and tears, Father, save me. And he was heard because of his piety. And although he was a son, although he's equal with God, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all of those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He had to learn. And I think that this was the last temptation that was a, a hurdle for him in this moment to say, I'm going to do the Father's will, no matter what. I will obey. What are we to do with our Savior in agony in the garden? What does it mean for Jesus to bear away the curse for our souls? It means going to the garden, it means drinking the cup, it means bearing the curse, and it means being resigned in glorious obedience to submit to the Father. What does it mean for you and for me? What does Jesus bearing the curse mean for you and for me tonight? Just two things. Number one, we cannot stare at Christ in the garden 
and walk away loving our sin. We cannot walk away from this moment loving the very thing our Savior died to free us from. Brothers and sisters, application number one from the Garden of Gethsemane, hate your sin which killed your Savior. Hate it with everything you've got. How solemn and sober it is to think that the trembling and stainless soul of Jesus will be cast into outer darkness and hell itself for me who can barely muster any form of mild disgust over my sin. But here in the garden, we know what sin costs. Every time I read this passage, I wish I could pause and I wish I could get into a time machine and I wish I could go back to the garden and I wish I could get out and see my Savior lying in agony on the ground and just kneel down next to his head with tears streaming down my eyes to say, I'm so sorry. You are going through this because of me. It's because of me. You've done nothing to deserve this. It's because of me that you're here. And I think in that moment, if if I could be there with my Savior and just hold him and say, I'm so sorry, I think he would hold me. I think he'd look at me and he'd say, for the joy set before me, I'm glad to undertake this. I don't condemn you, Patrick. Now go and sin no more. See how agonizing it was for our Savior to conquer our sin and let that bring you to a place of absolute hatred for sin. Many people often ask the question, who killed Jesus? It's a historical question. Did the Romans kill Jesus? Did the Jews kill Jesus? Yes and yes. But theologically, it's very clear. Who killed Jesus? The Father and me. The Father put his son to grief willingly. The son willingly went there. And I nailed my Savior to the cross. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Number one, hate your sin which killed your Savior. And number two, love your Savior who became sin on your behalf. Oh, my friends, love Jesus. See him there weeping in the garden because he loves you. And he chooses to go through with the obedience that he had planned before the foundation of the world because he loves you. He loves his Father. He wants to glorify his Father and he wants to bring you to his Father. He's able to help you in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your temptation with sin. He is there. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to want to succumb to temptation. He knows what it is in this moment to say, is there another way? And in our suffering and in our sin and in our temptation, Jesus doesn't dispatch an angel to be our help. Jesus says... Let me be your help. I want to be your help. I want to be there with you. Love your Savior. 
Hate your sin, but don't just stare inside and look at your sin and say, man, I hate my sin and I want to get rid of it. Yes, live out the end of Romans 7. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. I'm a wretched man. I don't know what to do. But don't stay there. Go to chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Run to your Savior. Spurgeon says, I fear I have not been able to make you think of the blood of Christ the way I want. So I beseech you then, just for a moment, try to picture yourself there with Christ on the cross. Let your imagination figure the motley crew assembled around the hill of Calvary. I want to encourage you to do this. Just close your eyes and think about what Spurgeon is going to tell you to think about. See that motley crew assembled around the hill of Calvary. Now lift your eyes and see three crosses put upon that rising knoll. See in the center the thorn-crowned brow of Christ. Do you see the hands that have always been full of blessing nailed fast to that accursed wood? Do you see his dear face more marred than that of any other man? Do you see it now? As his head bows upon his chest in the extreme agonies of his death. He is a real man. Remember, it was a real cross. You think of these things as figments and fantasies and romances. There was such a being and he died as I am describing it. So let your imagination picture him. And then sit still for a moment. And think over this thought. The blood of that man whom I now behold dying in agony, must be my redemption. And if I would be saved, I must put my trust only in him and what he suffered there for me. I want to ask you tonight, have you done that? Have you put your trust in Christ? Maybe you know facts about Jesus. Maybe you know historical accounts. Maybe you even sit here and you believe that he died on a cross and you believe he rose from the dead. But those beliefs have not changed your life. You still live in your sin, you love your sin, and you don't love the Savior. You still say, yes, I believe that those things happened, but they don't really change anything about me. God has brought you here this evening to remind you that that qualifies you to have the same kind of faith as a demon, right? The demons believe that God exists. The demons believe that he is who he claims to be. They believe he's the only way to be saved. That's it. Demons aren't saved. What takes you beyond a place of just being similar to a demonic faith? It's committing everything you have to those historical facts. It's committing everything you have. It's loving with every fiber of your being. Never perfectly. That's why we love Jesus because Jesus perfectly loved the Father in our place because we don't perfectly love the Father. Do you love him? Not just do you believe that those things occurred but do you love that those things occurred? Do you see that those things are your redemption, are your forgiveness, are your freedom, are your hope? Do you love Jesus? If you don't, tonight, I just want to plead with you, don't leave until you talk with somebody. Tonight, talk with the Lord. Talk with the one who was in this garden. Go to him in the garden and say, my sin has you here lying on the ground, and I need forgiveness. And if you are here tonight, and you know 
You know your Savior. And you know his death in your place, on your behalf. And you love him. Then tonight is a night to say thank you. Thank you for loving me. Good Friday is good for us because it was horrendous for our Savior. He went to the garden to resolve to drink the cup, to bear the curse, to gloriously submit to the Father in order that he might bring you and me to glory. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. We thank you for the blessing of being able to meditate in the garden with Christ. And we're undone as we look at our Savior lying there in agony because of us. Because of me. So we want to say thank you. We want to remember. Help us to do that with worship in our hearts at this moment. Amen. I'm going to ask the men now if they would come and we are going to partake of communion. And what I want to do as they are passing out the elements, let me just tell you what's going to happen. We are going to pass out all the elements, so we're going to pass out the bread and the cup together. Just hold them. Don't take them yet because we are going to partake together. If you love Jesus Christ, if you want to celebrate and remember his death, tonight is the night where these elements are absolutely for you to celebrate. If you do not know Jesus, just let these elements go by. They wouldn't really make any sense because you wouldn't be glorying in and worshiping the sacrifice of our Savior. Please, please, uh, as the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, meditate. Judge yourself. Make things right with the Lord and with others before you ever partake of communion. But what I want to do is as they're passing these elements out, again, just take them, hold them, don't partake together. We'll partake as a church family. Just hold them. I want to play a song that will just be something we can meditate on about the garden. Listen to the song. The words will be up on the screen. And then after the words, after that song is done and the words are done, there's going to be just a, a section of instrumental music. There's no words. So you can close your eyes and you can just meditate on the garden. And meditate on after the garden when Jesus is going to be betrayed, go to the trials, go to Pilate, be whipped, be, have the, nail, the crown of thorns put on his head, be crucified and die. Just let that moment be a moment where you can meditate on the glorious love of Jesus. And then we'll partake together after these songs, okay? To see the King of Heaven fall in anguish to His knees, the light and hope of all the world now overwhelmed with grief. What nameless horrors must He see to cry? In the garden Oh, take this cup away from me Yet not my will, but yours 
Yet not my will, but yours To know each friend will fall away And heaven's voice be still For hell to its vengeful day upon Golgotha's hill. No words describe the Savior's plight to be by God forsaken, to wrath and love are satisfied, and every sin is paid. And every sin is pain. What took him to this wretched what kept him on this road? His love for Adam's cursed race For every broken soul No sin to slide, to overlook No crime too great to carry Only his poison cup and yet he drank it all our savior drank it all
Jesus, we come to say thank you. There is nothing that we can offer that would match the gift that you've given. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, and even that falls short of your kind gift. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, Father, for willingly giving up your son. You did not spare your own son, but delivered him over for us all because of your amazing love. God, we stare at your kindness and your grace and and we just respond by saying, thank you. Thank you, you are so kind. And we want to hate our sin, but not to earn your favor. We want to hate our sin because you have died to free us, to forgive us, and you love us. So receive our worship now as we commune with you through these elements and as we receive them. We say, yes, we need you, Jesus. And you have graciously given us yourself. May we worship you now. In the name of Christ, our Savior, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Thursday night, in that upper room celebrating the Passover, he partook of uh, that Passover Seder, taking that afikomen, breaking it, and giving it to his disciples. But instead of saying this is a symbol of us being a broken people in Egypt and God graciously redeeming us, this is a symbol of my body being broken for you. Jesus did not need to be broken. He was whole, he was sinless, he was perfect. But he knew that us wretched sinners, broken and impossibly helpless, we could never be saved apart from him being broken for us. He took the bread and he said, eat, this is my body. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that as often as we do it, we proclaim his death. We are receiving what he did, reminding, remembering, worshiping, and saying thank you. Let's thank him together as we partake. You remember the uh, four cups of wine that were drunk during the Passover Seder? You had a, a cup of sanctification at the beginning that would set you apart. You had a cup of judgment. You had a cup of uh, redemption and a cup of praise and blessing at the end. Jesus held up that third cup, the cup of redemption. And he said that this is my blood. The cup of the new covenant and my blood is poured out for the sins of many. He uses the term that Bethany read in Isaiah 53, that he's uh, poured out, that he's broken for the sins of many, that he is alienated for the, the many. He's cut off for the many. So he uses that terminology to identify himself in a messianic way to say, I'm giving myself for the many, and my blood will be poured out for them. But notice, he will then go after drinking that cup. He says, I'm never going to drink this again until we drink it anew together in the kingdom 
And then he goes and he ponders another cup. It's really that second cup, the cup of judgment. And not the ten plagues judgment, but the wrath of God judgment. So he lifts that third cup to you and to me, and he says, I offer you redemption because I have taken upon myself the cup of judgment. That one comes first. And if you and I do not accept the cup of redemption, then we have to drink the cup of judgment ourselves. And brothers and sisters, my friends, I do not want you to drink the cup of judgment. I want you to drink the cup of redemption. If you know that Jesus has set you free, then this is yours to hold high and to say, because of your grace, Jesus, I am redeemed. Let's thank him together as we partake. And can we stand together? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. We can sing, it is well because he in the garden was not well and on the cross was not well. It is well with our soul because it was not well with his soul. But he was agonizing in his soul so that we can sing, it is now well. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Father, we thank you for our time meditating on the cross tonight and what Golgotha meant to you by examining what Gethsemane meant to you. And I pray that as we go from here, we would leave in a spirit of sober meditation, realizing that you in your kindness bore our penalty and your body was placed into the tomb. And, and it was days before you were raised and the disciples in their agony would have wondered, is this it? We have followed a Messiah who's now dead and it's over and it's done. And there was hopelessness. Father, I pray that we would remember that so that we could come back on Sunday to celebrate. You are alive. And we pray it in your name. Amen. I want to read the benediction from Numbers chapter 6, knowing that Christ took our curse so that this can be true of you and, you, me, you and me tonight. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you. And give you peace. God bless you as you meditate, as you remember. As you soberly reflect through the evening. Just imagine what the disciples would have felt. Going back to the upper room and thinking, we just wasted three and a half years of our lives. And then imagine what they would have felt. 
when they heard he is not here. He's risen from the dead. We have reason to celebrate. Sunday's coming. Let's glory in Good Friday and then celebrate Easter morning. God bless you all.